getting on a school bus on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. with a number two pencil and them saying, you're going to go take an ACT test. And we're like, what's that? <laughs> so we just, we had no idea what was in front of, and schools didn't come to our high school. Welcome to Starter Stories, a podcast that explores the stories behind the world's leading education technology companies and education consultancies and the people who created them. In each episode, you'll hear about the grit, the strategies, the wins, the failures, and the serendipity that transpired to take a half-baked idea and bring it to life. Starter Stories is a podcast of Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher education marketers. Explore our other shows like Fanatical Fridays and CRM Prov or access creative ideas on how to better your student recruitment campaigns via our videos, blogs, and e-courses at enrollify.org. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Enjoy the show. In just a moment, you'll meet Beverly Ryan, founder of Ology. Bev is an artist. In high school, Bev spent her free time in the art studio painting, sculpting, and drawing. She was always great at focusing deeply on one project at a time and ensuring that it was truly done before moving on to the next one. After college, she began taking on some freelance design work for some friends and local nonprofits in the greater Columbus area. And while she didn't know it at the time, a project here and a project there would eventually transform Bethke graphic design into method, which would then become ology. Recognized as one of Columbus's 30 most influential women by business first, Bev continues to be engaged in the community, particularly helping aspiring women leaders become successful and providing opportunities for young people to learn about the creative industry. Tune in to hear the exciting story of how Bev built and scaled one of the country's most respected higher education branding and marketing agencies, working with brands like Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, Purdue, just to name a few. All right. Without further ado, get ready to meet Bev Ryan, founder of Ology. All right, Bev. So if I were to have a class in high school with you and I'm sitting next to you or sitting behind you and I might not know you super well, but you're well known in the class. And if I were to ask other people to tell me about Bev and or if I was just to casually observe how you hold how you held yourself in that class what what might I observe well you probably wouldn't have known me well (laughs) (laughs) because I was very shy and very introverted okay so I hid most of my high school career in the art room Ooh. okay right so Westland High School was actually uh, a really um, bad high school, a really bad school district, drug problems, things like that. And no. what part, sorry, what part of Ohio is, is Westland in? It was in Columbus. In Columbus, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the art department, oddly enough, was amazing. So the art department had three different teachers. It had a textile teacher, a ceramics teacher, and a regular fine art teacher. And I spent all of my time there. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a haven for me and a place to to go and hide and do my thing because that's what I always did. Hmm. Would you? What were some of the things that you would create, or what would you sort of tinker with when you spent time there? You know, a fine artist. So yeah. I was always painting. I I was very committed to being an artist. I took classes in the summertime. I competed in shows. Wow, it was a big deal for me. Do you remember like the first piece that you ever created that you were especially proud of? I mean, this started when I was five, right? <laughs> so I think I was especially proud of my first oil painting because Ooh, okay. that felt serious. Mm. Yeah. My so. my father-in-law is an, actually a, an artist and he paints with oil. As And one of the things that I think should be obvious but like wasn't to me is just how when you're drawing the painting, how like potent it is. Um, and yeah, you have to like shift it into the garage just so that it doesn't like, you know, smell up the, stink up the entire house. But it is a, it's like a really cool medium. It's one that I, I don't think I, I never did in school. I only took a couple of art classes, but, but yeah, that's, that's great. What, when, when you sort of think about like that season of your life, were there 
particular influences that that stand out? Were there were there people that you gravitated towards and desired to emulate in some way, shape, or form? And if so, who were those people? Well, I think when I was you know in high school, I was looking at other artists, right? Yeah. I was I was really looking towards my art teachers. I was looking towards my art teachers that were you know, outside of even high school hmm. and, and my family, you know, really encouraging, really supportive, drove me everywhere you know, <laughs> to do the things I needed to do yeah, yeah. Uh, to keep moving forward. And in that time frame, I was just incredibly singularly focused. And I think that I've always been that way. And I think hmm. I am today, huh. you know, it's just like, a, I focus on a thing and I am so passionate about it. And I just put all my time into that thing. Speaking of, you know, today and, and focus, if I were to sit down with some of your closest family and friends, and if I were to ask them to tell me a little bit about Bev today, what what do you imagine that they'd say? I think they would say that, I think they know I have a tough outer shell because they don't think that you can be in business as long as I have without going through some tough times sure. and, you know, creating a little bit of armor for yourself but I think they would also say that that I have a really big heart mm. right tons of empathy I really care about people and um, I'm very giving and I also think they would look mostly look at me and say that's who feeds me <laughs> <laughs> because one of my other passions is cooking okay so. what is a, a new favorite recipe or a new favorite meal that we were just talking uh, before we went live here about your frittata recipe right but anything else that you're like especially passionate about when it comes to cooking at the moment i don't make a lot of things twice Ooh, and i okay. don't follow a lot of recipes Jeez, dang. so i you're like a real cook i'm then. kind of like i always liken it to i'm on a cooking show and you're forced to look in your refrigerator and see what you can make out of it <laughs> so that's what i do most of the time okay okay well I was going to ask you for whatever recipe you mentioned was your favorite, but I guess I can't because it's not written down. Speaking of food, when you were growing up, what were dinner table conversations like? Did your family like have dinner together somewhat regularly? And, and if so, what were the discussions like? So I don't know how she did it, but my mom made dinner every night. Wow. I look back on that and I'm like, ugh, that's, that was a lot. It was super consistent. And we all sat down every night for dinner at six o'clock. Okay. And we all had a conversation. Hmm. And so I think that part of American family is a little bit missing now. Yeah. And some of it is just the over um, scheduling of kids. My own kid is over, was over scheduled growing up. So we didn't get a lot of that time. But we had a lot of, you know, good, great conversations and debates. Hmm. I just remember debating with my dad all the time. And I think that that habit, asking me about what's going on in the world and what's my opinion on it and him pushing back on me was great practice. Do you remember like one or two debates that were especially heated and or and or like especially just, you know, memorable growing up? I think that I was probably more forward thinking than my <laughs> parents. So I would say things like, I... I think that I could definitely marry a black man. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I would say things like that just it, because I really felt like I could. Yeah. And, you know, it takes, and I think people evolve, right? Yeah. So in the late 70s, my dad would say something very different then than he would today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow, it's funny how that works. And and encouraging, actually, and watching how people evolve and change. Right. Do you remember, you know, what your parents talked like how, how they talked about higher education like was there was there this expectation in your home that you go to college was was it open for discussion was it open for a, a dinner table debate or how did your parents view advanced education i think they expected us to all go to college uh, i don't think they expected me to go to anything but an art school mm. i wasn't exactly uh, super strong academically Okay, okay, that's surprising. So, so part of hiding in the uh, art room and taking as many art classes as I could had something to do with poor math skills. Okay. <laughs> so I don't think they thought I would go to a regular four-year school. And so I applied to three different art colleges. I applied to Pratt and the Art Institute of Chicago and CCAD, Columbus College of Art and Design, which is local here. And part of me really wanted to move away right yeah from Columbus but first I got rejected from Pratt and then I got more money from 
the Columbus College of Art and Design. Yeah. So I stayed home. Do you remember during that process, during the, the college search process, like how did schools interact with you? Like was there, like today, right, a lot of folks, their first interaction with a college is in high school when some, you know, uh, admissions counselor or recruiter comes to their school and talks a little bit about their school and their offerings, et cetera. And, you know, or maybe they'll stumble into a, a college fair of sorts. How did schools, like, do you remember at all about like how schools like courted you and or tried to talk about you, you know, tried to like encourage you to enroll in, in their institution? Was it at all like it is today or pretty different? There was none of that. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, none of it. And when you started bringing all of those things up, I, I remember getting on a school bus on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. with a number two pencil and them saying, you're going to go take an ACT test. Wow. And we're like, what's that? <laughs> so we just, we had no idea what was in, and schools didn't come to our high school. Wow. I mean, it was 1982. Yeah. A little it was bit a different long then. time ago, right? Yeah. So I... I didn't even visit any schools. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, so you applied to these art schools based off of just like reputation? Like you would just heard of, of Pratt? It was, of... it was completely through my art teacher. Okay. She completely guided me. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. A real testament to, you know, the importance of teachers. That's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. So when you were in school, do you remember in, in high school that is like, do you remember what? job you wanted to have like did you did you think much about like hey this is the like clearly you were an artist you you wanted to paint I imagine you know maybe the dream was to be able to sell art and do whatever you want full-time but like what when you started thinking about your career or a job like what was the what was the first job you imagined yourself having I thought that I would be an artist a fine artist okay right and my parents were very concerned about that and I remember them talking to my art teacher and asking her, how's this going to work out for mm. a child, right? <laughs> and, you know, it was 1982. So her answer was, well, I think that Beverly could consider fashion design. Wow. Right? Maybe okay. because I was a girl. I have no idea. But I had no interest in that. Yeah. So I think I went to CCAD um, a little naive and thinking I would be a fine artist. And then once I got to CCAD, you know, they show you the way. They yeah. unpack it all for you. You declare your major your sophomore year. By the time you're a sophomore, they've, ex you know, exposed you to everything that you could be exposed to. And sure. that's the point of education, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember, like, a favorite class that you had in, in school? Or, or maybe it was even a class that you thought, oh, gosh, this is, this is going to be a snore. But it actually ended up being particularly interesting or, or compelling? I had um, so many classes that I loved at CCAD. One figure, I was petrified of figure drawing. I thought that was... Oh, oh, sorry, of figure fig drawing? Figure okay. drawing. I thought and that what was... It, that's just Oh, yeah, there's some, somebody standing there. Oh, okay. And yes. then it's your job like to... Like modeling or whatever. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so that felt overwhelming to me. But the teacher was amazing. The way he broke it down and just took all of that fear away. And you got really good at it. So mm. he was just a great teacher, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I had one teacher in particular, his name was Mr. Ashenbrand, and everybody was scared to death of him. And he was a type design teacher. So he taught, you know, just the art of designing type and spacing and kerning. And even to this day, I'm complete stickler about it. <laughs> and everybody was afraid of him. Wow. But I worked for him. I worked for him during the school year and I worked for him over the summers. And he was just had high standards. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. One of the things I, I always like to ask folks that went to school for, you know, something really specific and obviously fine arts falls into this. Did you continue like painting and creating on your own, like things outside of class projects or did class projects pretty much consume all of your time? Well, some of my class projects were fine art projects sure right sure. so but school was all-consuming yeah, yeah it was very difficult mm. so um you know i don't know that they could get by with it today but there was a lot of you know just a really heavy load yeah a lot of pressure yeah so and did you were you living on campus no they didn't even have dorms they didn't even have dorms no. okay so you were you were commuting to school it's ridiculous uh, saying, okay yeah wow. <laughs> 
how crazy the times have changed. Do you remember when you were in school and in college, like as senior year rolls around and you're thinking about what I do next, what were, what were you thinking about? Like what was on your mind? Were you, were you imagining that you would go in work as a teacher? Were you thinking, Oh, I, I have no idea what I want to do. Like talk to us about what was running through your head in your, let's say the, the fall semester of your senior year. So I'm still very shy. Okay. And I think that, you know, I had a, a great portfolio. I did well in school. Yeah. I had a lot of great friends at CCAD. I found my people there, right? Mm. And they all started getting jobs and they would encourage me to go to an interview and I think I can get you a job here. And I was horrified, Pet <laughs> petrified, um, petrified to the point where I was paralyzed wow. and didn't do any job interviews. I didn't wow. want to be, I guess, judged. Mm. I don't know. That's my, you know, 20 year old self or something. So I wound up doing freelance work for my friends okay. who had jobs, right? <laughs> and then I was doing enough freelance work that I was paying my own rent. And then I got a, a tip that there was some space available. And I thought, well, I can work out of this other space so that I'm not just like living and working in the same space. Funny, we're doing that now anyway. <laughs> and I kind of fell into starting my business that way. Really? Isn't that crazy? Yes. I've never had a job. Wow. So you were just freelancing for friends, found some space, decided let's, I might as well work from here as opposed to my bedroom. And then slowly but surely that grew. It did. The space that I found or that was referred to me was called the Jefferson Center for the Learning and the Arts. And it is a block in Columbus that was the first residential and it's really right behind CCAD. Okay. I feel like my life is about three square blocks in Columbus, Ohio, but it's actually, you know, a very big life. But it was right behind CCAD. And it was one room. It was $145 a month no air conditioner. I had to get a window air conditioner. And when I needed to make a Xerox copy, I had to turn the window air conditioner off <laughs> because the electricity would go out. But on that block were all nonprofits. So it was a nonprofit incubator. Mm. And those became my clients. Wow. Okay. So Ballet Met, Thurber House, like all of these nonprofits, you know, that had really strong purpose and mission, didn't have any money. And I would do what I thought, you know, was charging at pretty high prices, but I'm sure I wasn't. I was just super young and didn't know and doing work for them. And I wow. loved it. And that's what grew my client base initially. And then the people that were on the boards of those nonprofits noticed the work. Mm. Well, the people that are on the boards of nonprofits are community leaders. Yeah, have a little bit more money. And so I started doing work for sort of, you know, corporate Columbus within a couple of years. Wow. Isn't that weird? That is. That is such a like natural, like organic growth story. Was one of the things I love to ask creatives, and I don't know that if you identify as that, I know that I have learned that when it comes to creatives, everyone defines themselves a little bit differently. So it's, it's, you know, it can be tricky to, to rope everyone into this, this one broad group. But when you think about like working and when you think about specifically your your art like what aspect of it is most exciting to you? is it is it the initial concepting is it the idea that's born in your head before it's ever put on paper is it the final product is it the actual you know painting right and like the rhythm that comes with it or what is your if you had to sort of pick one aspect of like the creative process that you identify with most or or love most what what aspect is that i think it's the beginning and it's the end. So in the beginning, you're collaborating with your, you know, work peers, your yeah. friends, and you're coming up with ideas. So it's the idea generation. It's the critical thinking. It's the big idea. Mm. I think that that is the most fun. That is the most important thing you can do is start with a great idea and start with several. And then my other favorite part is when this has all come to fruition and it's out there yeah. for the world to see. And there's some kind of outcome for that, right? Because it's all about the impact that you're making. So I'm always super excited to see, is this working? Yeah. I want to know, yeah. is it working? So, so for me, it's the beginning and the end. 
when you were just starting out and you're working in this small space with a window air conditioner that you have to turn on and off in order to make a you know copy are you like are you running your projects or your work by others to get feedback to solicit feedback because one of the things that i have also seen to be true about creatives is like oftentimes they they rely on or or at least like you know appreciate critique from other people that you know that get them and i imagine in, in many of the the friends that i have that are that are working in design they struggle when they're like on an island like they're by themselves like they're a one man or one woman show in their firm and they just don't have somebody that gets it to like run the idea past like did you did you struggle with that at all like did you did you run those early projects by friends of yours or or not really I did have a couple of friends that we, you know, where we worked closely together, collaborated. A photographer uh, was one, another designer, so a writer. So we were kind of jamming all of the time anyway. And then I would say within a year and a half, I I started hiring people. Hmm. So that became collaborative every day anyway. So you kind of just start growing, realize that you need to hire somebody or, or a couple people because you're you can't do all the work yourself what at, at what point in time you know do you think oh like do you what at what point in time do you realize oh i've started a company or like oh th- this is this is just not you know this isn't just a bunch of of creative people messing around like I, i'm paying these people like this is work like would, would you have even considered yourself like an entrepreneur like would you have even used that language or at what point in time do you realize huh there's there's really something here. Oh, I think that I, I realized that when I first made the commitment to move to a specific space. Space is really important to me. Mm. So that tangible thing meant that I had something. Yeah. And I was making something and building something. So, and the, you know, money makes it real. Yeah. <laughs> so whether you, you know, have enough of it or not makes yeah. it real. And I would say the first five years, you know, it was kind of a hot mess. Yeah. Right. So I didn't know what I was doing. And I learned everything by trial and error. Yeah. yeah. With some error in there. <laughs> so I was a creative, you know, person. I still am today. Today, I can run a business. Yeah. You know, I like the back of my hand, right? Yeah. I know all of the numbers. But 35 years ago, not so much. Yeah. In the first two to three years, like what was hardest? Like what, when you, when you reflect on those early days, what stands out to you is, oh, wow, that this was like a big feat. Or when, when we, when we moved past this phase or when this person joined, whatever it might be, like what was, what was especially challenging in those early years? I think talking about money Mm. and being really solid with your value. Yeah collecting money you know just money yeah it took me a long time to kind of have be feel firmly planted in that way I was 22 years old yeah so who talks about money right (laughs) so anyway you know I got better and better at it incrementally I think key milestones were having a full-time designer yeah by my side that was amazing a full-time ride and then a really key milestone is a full-time you know business manager right yeah Uh, someone who was focused on all of the things that I did not get energy from yeah yeah so I think that's something that I picked up along the way is paying attention to what gives you energy Mm. and what doesn't and delegating the things that don't give you energy and that give other people energy right like puzzle pieces yeah at what point does the name ology come about was it was it from day one pretty much or or and and what's the story behind the name right so first the name of the company was bethke graphic design right mm. so remember this is a design firm this is a boutique design firm there's nothing about marketing higher education you're still working mostly with nonprofit organizations or, or mm-hmm. no a little bit of um, bit. yeah okay. a little bit of everything okay. but you know I think that I think I got my first Mac in 1989. I mean, the first couple of years of business, we were putting things on boards, you know, and, and stuff like that. There's nothing digital about it. So I don't know. I mean, it, it was um, so graphic design by Beverly or Beverly, you know, Bethke, <laughs> Bethke graphic design, whatever, you know, like your maiden name, you know, note to self, don't do that. Don't name <laughs> your company after your name. And then, of course, I, I said, well, I need to be more sophisticated than this. And when we moved to this space, that we're in now, which we've been here for over 20 years. Wow. We changed our name to Method. Method. Because okay. I wanted it to reflect um, 
you know, our work and what we did. I didn't want it to be about me. So our name was Method for probably five years. And then we had a national trademark, but then a firm in San Francisco had an international trademark. Ah. And they made us stop using (laughs) the name. And so we said, you know what, this is awful. But we put one foot in front of another. We sat in a room and said, what do we want to be? It's just a name. We're going to turn the lights off, turn them back on, and we're going to be a different name, and we're going to move forward. Yeah. And so we did. And ology stands for the study of things. Okay, beautiful. I mean, it's it's such a compelling, like almost like Silicon Valley-esque name which i don't know if that's a positive or a negative depending on who you talk to but but i but i've always i've always wondered like oh, wait where did that name come from and so even the even the name method is a very strong name it, it wasn't like method soap that r- ripped it from you guys was no it, it okay. was a digital company out in san francisco that okay. funny enough doesn't even exist anymore I guess. And here know, I sit. Yeah, here you sit. And here you sit. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think Ology's a, a cooler name. And probably, you know, pretty easy to win on when it comes to search <laughs> as opposed You're to right. method. Right. You're so, right about that. Yeah. Um, so after the first year, if you're after the first few years, you maybe this is when you guys are still method and you really start to grow. Like what what are a couple of vignettes when you think about that that time, that season that stand out as like major milestones, whether it was, you know, landing a particular client, whether it was onboarding a particular team member, whether it was branching off and sort of really deciding to kind of go all in on higher ed, like, at what point in time do you, I guess you decide to go pretty aggressively into the higher ed market? And then what are some other sort of like vignettes along the way that are important milestones in, in Ology's history? We'll jump right back into the show after a quick message from this week's sponsor. Hit your admissions goals faster with Harmony, the conversational AI chatbot by Mongoose that is transforming schools' recruitment efforts. With Harmony, you can easily deliver instant, relevant, and personalized engagement no matter what your website visitors are looking for. Answer frequently asked questions, start an application, book meetings, or route them directly to the right person all in real time. Want to check out the Harmony chatbot for yourself? Head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify to do so. Again, that's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. I think certainly moving into our current space, which was over 20 years ago, it was we moved from 3,000 square feet to 15,000 square feet in a day. Wow. So that's biting off a lot. It's a pretty bold move. And, you know, today we have 23,000 square feet, none of which is relevant in today's world. <laughs> but I think moving into the space really made a statement. It changed the way we work. It supported the way that we worked. Displayed thinking, looking at everything holistically on a wall. We have over 8,000 square feet of tackable space here. It, you know, it, it was a part of, you know, the space that we created for people to do really good work. Yeah. So that was a big deal. I think locally, just our space or the space we took up in our own community was really important. Mm. And so there have been moments where we've won a lot of really nice community-based awards. And I love that because that's about giving back. And I think we got those roots working on nonprofit work from the very beginning. And so we're constantly giving back in that way. And there's one award in Columbus called the Community Arts Partnership Award. And it's all about businesses that give back. Yeah. And we've actually won that three times. Wow. Um, with like 10 years in between. Okay. <laughs> so I love the consistency yeah. of that. And I think about the impact that we've had on our community. And I just love that. Wow. Have you guys, like, how are there a lot of like startups or, or agencies kind of in Columbus proper? Like, has being in this area, like, have you been able to attract talent from different parts of the country, you know, over, over the course of, Ology's sort of history, or are most people that work here that you that you all have hired are are they from Columbus? I think for a long time, a lot of our folks came from Columbus yeah. agencies, right, or you know wherever, or right out of school, or whatever it was. Yeah. But you know, Columbus was the common thread. Some folks we recruited from out of town, but not many. Yeah. In the past year, we've hired seven people from yeah. out of state. <laughs> so think about the how the world has opened up yeah. and the kind of, you know, talent that we're able to recruit. It's, 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 you know, some doors shut in COVID and some doors just blew right open. Yeah. So you have to look at the, the good 
yeah. of what comes out of it. I can't believe the people that we've been able to pull in and and what they're bringing to the table. I, I just love it. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. It's a really, really, you know, it's blessing and a curse. I'm a blessing because you can work with incredible people that you otherwise would never be able to work with. It's a curse because you don't get to spend as much time with them in person as, as we would like. But so at what point in time do you meet Bill? Like what's, what's that story? Okay. So the story with Bill is that I was introduced to him uh, by a, a common friend and it um, actually came through the Jazz Arts Group, which was a nonprofit that I was doing work with, one of my early clients. And he was on the board okay. of that. And we had lunch and he's a, he's a connector. Hmm. Bill's always got lunch scheduled, right? I don't know what he's been doing the past couple of years for eating, but that <laughs> dude always has lunch going. So he, I think he came over for lunch or we had lunch together or something like that. And, and he was looking for his next move, hmm. right? And we were, when I think of the time frame, I think that we were in the middle of a recession. Okay. And I knew that we, I know at that time we were really struggling and he came in and we started talking mostly about the work. Mm. I was sharing the work that we were doing and he was really into it and he appreciated the quality of the work. And so I knew he wasn't a creative person, yeah. but somebody that really cared about the work, yeah. that was a common thread that mattered to me. We both took a complete leap because I thought, well, the business is struggling the the world is hurting right now <laughs> and there's not a whole lot I can do about it but I think this guy's gonna help me yeah and and oh my gosh he did mm. right and so he has just complete opposite skill sets mm. than me and so that little that little puzzle piece just became a game changer in the business and he said I can take this I can help you take this to another level mm. and that's exactly what we did and because the business wasn't doing great at that time. We had a lot of, you know, walking through the mud together yeah. in the very, very beginning. And that meant that we solved a lot of problems and got through a lot of hard times together. And I think that just made a bond, yeah. you know, for us. And we just completely respect each other. Wow. It's so cool to hear stories of co-founders or partners that kind of come together and and what it is, at least initially, that is attractive about the individual, and then to hear to, especially you know, long-standing relationships. I mean, that's that's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on on both parties. And I, I feel like successful partnerships are are unfortunately you know few and far between. But when when there are when there is an example of of a successful partnership, it's it's always just a, a nice beacon, a nice like lighthouse to to point to is like this can work like opposites do attract right and opposites can can make magic happen together so i'm curious to hear a little bit about like right now what is your favorite hat that you wear at ology like i imagine you spend little to no time i guess this is this is me guessing here but little to no time doing a lot of design and probably have graduated to doing some other things so what is like your favorite thing that you do right now at Ology? There's two things I do that that are my favorite things. One is kind of jumping in and fixing things. Mm. So you kind of take on a role of solving problems when you're in a leadership position. And a friend of mine that I respect a lot has, has always said to me, when you don't enjoy solving problems anymore, you probably don't like leadership either, mm. right? So I think that I get energy from solving problems and helping people. And I've had a lot of years of experience at this point. So there's a lot in my toolbox. Yeah. So I can kind of look at a situation and say, oh, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> so here's, let's try this. And, and just kind of showing people the way out of something and mm. then finding success there. So that's really gratifying for me. And the second thing is being involved in creative. I love that initial conversation yeah. that I get to have with writers and designers. And, you know, I love being part of those brainstorms and, you know, saying, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Have you seen this out in the marketplace? I think we could take this and adapt it to that. And, you know, the, all that connection, that is energizing. Yeah. And then watching other people light up and what they bring to the table. It's awesome. Yeah. At what point does Ology 
decide to go all in or, or, or you know, very in to higher education? Like, at, at what point was was that like a strategic decision? At some point, did it kind of just naturally evolve organically? Like, at what point do you guys decide to focus at least a substantial amount of your business on higher ed? So it did happen organic, but it became the fun work that we did. Mm. We were doing a lot of financial services, oh. you know, 2007, 2008, and then you can imagine what happened yeah. uh, in that time frame. Well, <laughs> this sector's not good for us anymore. So in the meantime, we kept putting a lot of energy into doing work for colleges and universities. Well, th- you know, the first school that we did work for was Columbus College of Art and Design. Okay. Right? Funny how that happens. <laughs> I know, right? But then that that all led to other things, other okay. connections. And, and we did one really big engagement with a school down the street called Capital University. We were able to really work through the entire admissions funnel, advancement campaign, the whole thing. It gave us a lot of experience. And we looked and said, oh my gosh, this is like 40% of our business. And this is the stuff we love. Nobody wanted to work on the other things anymore. (laughs) So we started leaning in and truly marketing that. And then we started a couple years later, we put a stake in the ground and changed our positioning as well. Wow. Here's what I love. I love focusing on one thing that you're really passionate about because you can truly be the smartest person in the room. When we were working on it within like three or four different industries, I felt like I was faking it. You know, packaging up, you know, why you should go with this company for a 401k. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't know anything about 401ks, but, but you know, it wasn't in my heart to really dive deep and figure that out. So, you know, when you find something where you want to keep digging and you're really super curious and you care about where that industry's going and you care about all the people that are in it, and it makes you excited, then you can keep going with that. And you can be smart and add value. You know, it just feels so good to add value and have confidence. You can have confidence when you're really clear on something. Yeah. I I love what you said too about how no one wanted to work on these projects. (laughs) No one wanted to take them on. And I I do think as as a leader, specifically as a leader of, of an agency, you, you could decide, right? Because, oh, well, you know, screw them. We, we need to just hire people that don't care, right? And hire people that want to work on what, you know, businesses coming in the door, right? Beggars can't be choosers. And and yet I do think, like, we're, especially in the moment that we're living in right now, like, talent is incredibly important in attracting the right talent. Like, the amount of time that leaders that I talk to all over the place are spending hiring right now and trying to, you know, people are leaving or people, you know, new people are, they're onboarding people that live in California in different time zones, whatever it might be. It's an incredible investment of time and energy and resources. And I think that we're living through a moment where leadership, especially at the agency level, is going to have to wrestle with those questions like, oh, if nobody likes working on this, you know, 401k campaign, but they all love working for Purdue University, maybe maybe it makes sense to make note of that. And maybe that should have at least, you know, uh, some impact on where we choose to spend our time and, and really where we choose to strategically grow as an organization. You should really pay attention to that because that's where all the energy is going or yeah. not going. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, it's how excited are your people to work on something, how gratifying is it? We have a responsibility to follow that and pay attention. And and hopefully we're aligned, right? And, and in this case, we were. Yeah. So, you know, it worked out. One of my favorite questions that I ask everyone that comes on this show is to walk us through an oh shit moment, right? A, a time in Ology's history where you thought this idea, like <laughs> this is this is not going to work or like, Hey, it's worked up until this point, but you know what? I've we've put in our ten years. Time to go do something else. Like, what if ever was there a moment where you really thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this? And then, how did you champion through that doubt? How did you sort of overcome that fear? When I think about hiccups or low points in the business, I I think about generally what are outside forces and I always define an outside force as something that you're really not responsible for but it happened Mm. so it makes me think of 9-11 I just remember all of that happening and Bill and I happened to be back in the kitchen here at the office at the same time and we looked at each other and we said oh shit (laughs) right and we knew that this was going to be bad bad for the country um 
and the ripple effect that it would have on us as leaders in a business. There have been a couple of recessions. The financial recession that I talked about, at the time we had an office in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Just for our clients in New York that were more financially driven. That had to close, mm. right? So I would say that was an oh shit moment because that was a huge investment that didn't go well. And of course, COVID, right? Yeah. So I remember being worried about it pretty early on and making some pretty bold mood moves early and talking to people about it. I remember standing in the hallway here with everybody gathered around saying, well, we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. We'll see you guys in, you know, I think it's going to be like six to eight weeks, but we'll be back. You know, don't worry. And then from then on, every problem was solved remotely mm. and we figured it out. And, yeah. and honestly, we didn't have time to freak out about it. Yeah. There was no yeah. time for that. Our clients needed help. Yeah. We had to figure out how to help our clients do virtual events. Yeah. Like on the fly. It was, it was exhausting. And, you know, at first a lot of stuff got canceled, but then a lot of other things ramped up because people needed things. So it was, it was just the, it was the, the idea of, you know, learning so many new things so quickly. Mm. It was being worried about each other. All of a sudden, like for me, up until a couple years ago, I would say that the thing that mattered the very, very most above anything else was the work, Yeah. right? And I care about the work greatly, but that got turned on its head because I was so worried about our people, their families, their safety, their parents, Yeah. everything. So at that point, when we would refer to ourselves as a community, it's like, mm, we're family. Like we're all taking care of each other right now. And we would kind of prop each other up because yeah. you would have good days and bad days. Days where it's like, I can't take being in my house anymore. I can't take my kids anymore. I can't, <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna, you know. And then we all kind of said, so-and-so needs a break today. Yeah. So we all prop each other up and take care of each other. And to me, that was an oh shit moment that turned into a pretty beautiful thing. Very, very well said. What What's striking to me about, I this is the first time we've even ever spoken, and I've only spoken with Bill a couple of times, but I feel like from both of you, there's this, there's this strength and almost this like stability that you, you guys have like this like gravitational pull to, oh, like I, I, I can put stake in that, right? Like I, I can, I can trust them. And I think that as leaders, you know, it's obviously incredibly important to emulate strength while, you know, simultaneously emulating a fair amount of vulnerability. But I think that what's so clear, I think, too, and, and it actually must be a, a reason for your all's long-term success is is that focus, right? Is that stability? And I do think that that, that unfortunately is a little hard to come by with, with many leaders today. Like, I, I do feel like, especially in this environment, it COVID brings out the best and also the worst in, in people like change brings out the best, some of the best things and also some of the worst things about people. And I think especially for, for teams throughout this, you know, tumultuous season of life, knowing that the people at the helm are stable, I can, I can throw my lot in with them, I think is incredibly important. And I think that comes with consistency, right? I have a thing in my office, a little, I have all kinds of things in my office, but I miss it because there's it reminds me every day kind of what's important to me and there's a little thing I tore out that said consistency is better than a flash of brilliance mm. right mm. so we're consistent and we show up we show up every day for our clients and our people we live by our values they know what to expect and they've also seen us evolve over time yeah like they've watched it happen so we're we're good students right I think our associates are good teachers even to us and there's just mutual respect across the board everyone's so talented i have a a couple final questions for you the first one is around you know the the best and worst pieces of advice that you've received over the course of of your career i imagine you know going from this small space where you're paying $145 a month for rent and now we're in this 23 I think you said thousand square foot like beautiful building you've you've seen a lot of change you've you've led a lot of change and I imagine along the way 
unsolicited and solicited advice have you know found their way to you. So when you think about building, again, not just a, a startup that you're going to sell in two years, right? Or, or you're building a, a true like legacy business. You've, you've dedicated your life to this. Like what are some of the best and worst pieces of advice you've received along the way? And so I, I don't know about, you know, advice as much as like reframing that toward things I've witnessed, mm-hmm. being close to people and letting them lead by example. I've just met so many people along the way, right? So one of my very first clients, um, his name was Lou DeWine, and he really helped me to make sure that my business reflected my values Mm. because he was very values-driven. And this was early days, we're talking late 80s, where purpose-driven and, you know, values-driven wasn't as much of a thing in business, right? But it was for him, and it became that for me because of him. So I think that, you know, that was something that that really impacted me. I think that there was a client that we actually followed him to f- like four different clients. His name was Steven Schreidman. And every meeting I was in with him, he made a difference in that meeting. He lifted up the room. Hmm. So I looked at that and I thought, well, there's so much power in that. He would put everybody in a better state of mind and the work was better and the the camaraderie was better and you just relied on him for that I just admired that so greatly so I try to think about that how am I entering into a meeting whether that's a zoom call or whatever or a room what am I bringing to the table how am I impacting it am I shifting something towards something positive and then Denny Griffith was the president of CCAD for 16 years and I was very close to him and he gave me and everybody around him confidence, right? So he just instilled this incredible confidence in people and it let you feel like, you know what, I deserve to be at this table. Yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good enough. This is, you know, I'm here, Denny says I'm okay, right? And and I just thought that was such a gift. Hmm. So if you can do those things for people, wow, you make an impact in the world. And I think your other question was, what's the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten? I think we should open an office in Brooklyn. Right Right before the financial crisis. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Well said. Is when you think about the the future, the next few years here, like what's top of mind? Like what, what are you focused on? What are you excited about? And you know, what, what can the world what can higher ed expect from Ology over the next few years? Well, when you talk about what will stay the same, right? I think that our commitment to the kind of quality of work that we do, that never really wavers. Mm-hmm. There's, we have so much longevity at Ology and even, you know, the newer people, they've, they've come here because they've bought into that idea, yeah, right? Yeah. They know that what we're promising and that that is what we'll deliver. So that will never change. I think the thing that's evolving the most for us right now is the digital work we're doing. I think that there's a place, a white space in the market, specifically higher education for bold digital work, even digital marketing and, you know, digital campaigns, they feel a little safe, right? And and that is something that I I want to bust through that space. I'm super passionate about that right now and and I have faith that we'll do it and it will make a bigger impact and change how that work gets done in the future. I think it's too conservative right now. And I think it's hard for colleges and universities to go out there with something that other people might talk about. But that is how you get talked about. Yeah. Right. And and I think that it's, it's driven to me anyway by what a 16 or 17 year old wants. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about what we're comfortable with. It's where they are. And to convince our clients to get into their heads and actually do something with that information. I think we all have a lot of information. But what are, we, what are we doing with it? Remember who your customer is. Right, right, <laughs> right. I lied. I actually have one final question for you. Okay. So this was three. Final, final question for you is if you could do anything else, right, or, or start anything else, this could be, a, I don't know, like a coffee shop or an Italian wine bar. What's, what's that thing in the back of your head that you think, oh, you know, it would have kind of been cool to do that or you know what i i might want to do something like this or hey when when i retire 
I, I might actually want to go start this thing. What, it, what, if anything, is that thing? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think th- I have a lot of answers for that. Um, ology has been around for a long time, right? So I would say that ology is a collection of several different companies over time yeah, because of yeah. our evolution. And, you know, I think we'll continue to do that. One of the things that I crave right now, when I think about the next evolution or an extension, don't you ever just want to land on campus and stay there for a month, Mm. you know, and just get it done and and be close to the client and get in there? I I just crave that so much right now. We used to, you know, visit campuses a lot, and I'm sure that will come back. But there's a big part of me that just wants to leave my life and just walk into that space, get in so deep and then set them up and just tap into everything I know and give that to them and then say, go forth. You know, I I just feel like there could be a closer, a closer experience. That's all. I, I crave that. And I think that could be a business. I don't know. And then other than that, it's probably my my addiction to cooking <laughs> but I really worry I don't want to do anything that turns it into money because it won't be fun anymore yeah well Bev this has been incredible I really really am thankful for for your time for your leadership for what you've built you know the the legacy of ofology the perception of the work that you all do in the greater marketplace is is you know nothing short of uh, exceptional so I just want to thank you for your years of service. I'm glad. I'm glad that you evolved from, you know, that that 100 and uh, some odd square foot place and that you have built a, a brand that is really bettering the industry as a whole. It's not just bettering you. It's not just bettering your team, but it's, it's really sort of making a difference in the greater space. So thank you for your work yeah. and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Starter Stories. Starter Stories is brought to you by Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher ed marketers. Enrollify was built to empower enrollment marketers with the ideas, the strategies, and the tools that they need to optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. You can explore our other podcasts or sign up for one of our newsletters or watch an episode of Frideas, our weekly video segment, at enrollify.org. Oh, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button or leave us a review. And if you like what we're about, share this content with a friend. Finally, if you know a founder in the ed tech or education consulting space that you think we should have on this show, please send me an email directly at Zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org.